As you heard the text, today is the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. So this is, like I said, the last Sunday that we're studying Luke's gospel this year, and it's probably appropriate that on this last Sunday of studying Luke's gospel this year, we are studying a text that is unique to Luke's gospel and is one of the best known stories in the entire Bible, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The challenge for us is that when you study a text that you know very well, or maybe even more so when you're someone like me and you have to preach a text that I assume at least the vast majority of people in here have heard before, it can get uh, tempting to try to get creative about what the parable means. But we can't do that. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jude tells us that the faith was once delivered for all time for the saints. We're not here to be creative about God's word. We're here to once again hear the message that God has given us. And so today, I want to break our teaching into three points. If you're following along with the notes, you can see those on your notes sheet. I want to look at the context of this text, because one of the things that is the danger with a parable like the Good Samaritan is we take it out of its context. Most of us have heard it out of its context. But actually, within its context, it it plays a specific role. Then I want you to see the main point, the main point that, that Jesus is actually trying to get across, which, very frankly, is not the main point that I hear preached a lot when I hear this preached. And then I want you to see all the other stuff. There's a whole bunch of stuff in this parable that often gets preached as the main point, but isn't, and yet is still valuable. So that's where we're going today, the context, the main point, and the other points. First, let's look at the context. Uh, This text starts with the phrase, on one occasion. And uh, for the life of me, I cannot figure out exactly why they translated this phrase this way. In Greek, the the phrase is kai edu, which means, and behold. Uh, Now, the the commentators who do do really good work with the Greek will say that it either means one of two things. On the one hand, and behold means something like, this is the main point, right? Check it out is maybe what we would say in English. Uh, Other commentators will say it's simply a time marker that Luke is trying to say, like, on the heels of what just happened— which was, by the way, Jesus sending out the 72 and them coming back and him saying to them, rejoice that your names are written in heaven and blessed are the eyes that have seen what you have seen. 
He says right on the heels of that, the next thing that happened right away, as if to connect these two thoughts together, this expert in the law comes up to test Jesus. Now, I think either of those is a plausible explanation, but the point of it is to see that Luke wants you to have read everything leading up to this story. In some way, this is the culmination of everything we've been studying. The message that those 72, the message that the 12, were bringing out to the kingdom of God was a message that Jesus was trying to communicate here. And Luke sees that very poignantly connected. We find out that on this one occasion, this moment, this culmination of this section of the gospel, an expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. Um, An expert in the law, don't think law as in like the legal code of your country, think law as in the first five books of the Bible. Uh, This is commonly called Torah. Torah is just a Hebrew word that means law, Um, but that's what they use to describe these first five books of the Bible. He was an expert in those books, Deuteronomy, like we read earlier. And it says that he stood up to test Jesus. Now, of course, when we think of testing, we think of probably sitting at a desk and filling out a piece of paper. That's testing in our minds. And that's fine, but we have to remember that in general, there are two reasons to give a test. One of those is test to find out comprehension. This is what really good teachers do. They'll teach the the content, and then they'll give a test to their students to see how well their students comprehended the information and they regurgitate the information that I told them, or do I have to go back and teach it again? This is what good teachers do. Unfortunately, the second way that we often test is the way that much of our education system works today, which is simply to get people to pass a standard so we can get them out of our class and into the next grade. Right? It's, it's to see, do you pass? And that is what the expert in the law is doing here. He is evaluating Jesus to see if Jesus passes his standard for what a biblical theologian should be. See, experts, they don't ask questions to gain information. They're experts. They ask questions to interrogate. And so Jesus has, or excuse me, the expert in the law asks this question of Jesus to see, Jesus, are you, are you legit? Like, can I trust you when it comes to the Bible? And, and you can probably figure out why if you look back on Jesus' life so far. Here's this guy who is proclaiming this free kingdom of God that anyone can enter simply by believing in him as the Messiah. And this expert of law knows those passages from Deuteronomy that we read, which, if you're paying attention, they're they're pretty harsh and they're pretty strict, right? You need to do this if you want to prosper. If you want to obey God and and be part of God's nation, do these things. And and he says, is this Jesus, this guy, throwing all that away? Like, do the rules not matter to this guy? Well, he is surprised, right? Jesus will eventually say, absolutely, I affirm the law. Do this and you will live Go and do likewise, he says. But this is what the expert in the law is angling at. He's trying to test Jesus. So he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which, if you're a good Lutheran, this will perk up your antenna immediately, and you will slam the table, and you will say, we don't do anything to inherit eternal life. We are saved by grace through faith. Which is good. That's a good, that's a good intuition to have. But I don't want you to miss what Luke is, is noting by seeing this question right here at the beginning of the text. This is setting the tone for what this text is about. Do you see the nature of this question? It is a vertical question. It is a question having to do with my relationship with God. Now think about how much of the Good Samaritan parable is preached. It is often preached as my relationship with other people. Horizontally. How do I treat other people? Am I generous to the poor? Am I a good Samaritan? We miss the point. 
This whole thing starts with a vertical question about my relationship with God. The parable of the Good Samaritan is about my relationship with God. And we have to see that. that. That helps us understand what is the main point of this text. So he asks this question, what must I do to get right with God? And Jesus answers him by asking his own question. Well, what is written in the law? You're the expert. How do you read it? Jesus, of course, then tests the man and, and he gets a good answer, right? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the right answer, right? The, the Old Testament codified the law of God in what we probably call the Ten Commandments. But if you break those down, the first three commandments are all about loving God. And the last seven commandments are all about loving your neighbor. So this is simply just a summary of all the things God has commanded. It's a good answer. So what the expert in the law at this moment expects Jesus to do is to say something like, yeah, I'm pushing that all away. <laughs> we don't need that anymore. People don't have to follow the law or maybe at least to hem and haw over it and, and not be too specific. But, but Jesus' answer surprises him. He says, you have answered correctly, but then he doubles down, do this. Do this and you will live. Which was a little too unnuanced for this expert in the law. The expert in the law did not like this flat, universal command, do that perfectly. Because he wanted to believe at some level that, that there was a sliding scale. Right? Like, I can love certain people certain ways, and I can love God in ways that make sense for me or work out for me, but, but just a flat love God all the way, all the time, with everything that I am, and love every single person as if I would love myself, that's a little bit much. But you think about it for a minute. What would it look like to love God with everything that you are all the time? Whatever you're imagining is not good enough. <laughs> Like, I don't even think we can imagine this because we've never been uncorrupted by sin. But at the very least, it would be going through every single moment of your day, every single synapse that fired in your brain, and making sure to take it captive to Christ. To make sure that every moment was, was thought about in light of what God says is good. That means there's no, well, it's just one night. I need a little bit of me time. Nope, none of that. Always, all the time, for Jesus. And then love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> How do you love yourself? Clothe yourself, feed yourself, wash yourself. You even give yourself some luxuries. <laughs> think about doing that for one other person. Can you think about that? I mean, I think the closest we can get is probably like taking care of children. Those of us who have had children, we do actually do all those things for little babies. But none of us do it with a, with a happy heart all the time. Or you talk to any parent, there are some days where it is a challenge. There are some days where, yeah, you do it, but you do it to the bare minimum. <laughs> to love your neighbor as yourself? For our own flesh and blood, that is hard. Much less somebody who is different from us in whatever way you want to articulate. This was too much for the expert in the law. So, so the Bible tells us that he wanted to justify himself, and so he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Um, to justify ourselves, that's not something that we really, we talk about very much in our common um, way of speaking, but I, I think there's actually one place in our language where we still use the word justify that's actually really helpful for understanding what uh, the, the expert in the law is doing here, and that's with word processing. So do you understand the difference between left-aligned text and justified text? 
Some of you work with word processing. If you don't, that's all right. You can see some examples here. Uh, the green box is left-aligned text. So all of the text is lined up on the left side of the text box. On the right side of the text box, there are varying ends of where the text is. In the red box, you can see justified text, where the text is stretched. Because even though there are fewer or more letters in each line, the lines end up at the same spot on each side. This is justified text versus left-aligned text. What is justification when it comes to text? It is taking inconsistencies and making up for them in order to keep consistency. Let me say that again. It is taking inconsistencies, differing lengths of lines, and making up for them in order to create consistency. If you want to write that down, here's a way to write it down. Even though things don't line up, it's okay. That's what justification means when it comes to text. Now, this is really helpful for us because this is what we all do with our own behavior. We are inconsistent people. We treat different people inconsistently. And so what we are constantly trying to do is we are trying to justify that inconsistent behavior so that we can seem to be consistent people across the board. I'll give you a flesh and blood example. If my kids ask me uh, or say to me, Dad, we're too tired to clean up, I will say to them, tough. It is time to clean up. If my wife says to me, I'm too tired to clean up, I will say, that's fine. I'll do it. It's the same question, but it's two different reactions. I am inconsistent. So what's the justification for treating those two people differently? Well, one's my child and one's my wife, right? And I have a different relationship with them. One, I am trying to mold into human beings that can function in society. The other one, I am unconditionally loving for her good. So I have to treat them differently. That's the justification. It makes that inconsistent behavior consistent. Now, that's fine when you're dealing with your family, but what we do is we do this with everything in our life. We say, what's the standard? Okay, well, how can I justify it? How can I make it okay that I was inconsistent in those situations? And so we'll say things like, I was having a bad day. I'm not that type of person. Nah, I was raised differently. I don't have time. That doesn't really interest me. I'm just a straight shooter. That's how I talk to people. We will give any sort of justification, any sort of reason for the inconsistencies in our life. Now think back to what Jesus said to this expert in the law. He said, there's no justifications. It all has to be aligned no matter what. So you can see why this expert in the law wanted to justify himself, right? He wanted to find the sliding scale where he could be okay with God's law. My question for us is, how much do we do that? Is there a little expert in the law in each of us? It says, I know what God says. <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But here's my justification. God will have none of it. And so Jesus answers this question of who is my neighbor with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you know the parable, of course. The, the man gets beat up on this, this real road that existed between Jerusalem and Jericho that the priests and the Levites, they would walk on it and it was known for being a place where people would get beat up and mugged. Well, a man gets beat up and the priest and the Levite walk past and then a Samaritan comes and picks him up. 
Now, to understand the, the scope of this parable, you do have to understand a little bit of the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. Um, Samaritans are something of a half-breed. They were people who were not completely ethnically Jewish and also not completely ethnically Gentile because they were the products of intermarriages between these nations. And so the Jews hated them because they weren't completely Jewish, and the Gentiles hated them because they were kind of Jewish. And so no one really liked these guys. And so the Samaritan, who no one expects to like anyone because, frankly, no one likes him, gets down off his donkey, helps this man on the side of the road, bandages up his wounds, brings him to an inn, pays for all his costs. And this is Jesus' answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Now, as we, we hear the text, I think there's some visceral reaction in every one of us that's like, aw, like, we love that, the unconditional love, the generosity of this man who helps this other person. But in context, that's not what's happening. The parable of the Good Samaritan in its original context is absolute condemnation. You think there's a justification for your behavior? Then outdo this Samaritan. Be able to love your neighbor even if you can't stand your neighbor. Be able to love your neighbor even if your neighbor is, in your mind, less than human. Can you do that? Absolutely not. (laughs) You think there's a justification? Jesus leaves no back doors. It's God's law, and that's it. So I ask again, how deep does our self-justification go? Do we want to hear God's law and try to justify it away? Or do we hear it like it really is? At this point, if you're hearing Jesus the way he wants to be heard, you should be as flat on the ground as that man who was beaten up on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Which is exactly where Jesus wants you to be. Because the parable of the Good Samaritan, although it is first condemnation for every single person to show us our helplessness, it is then the message of the gospel. Look at the parable. The Good Samaritan, there's a man left for dead. He's abandoned by all others. He's found by some half-breed of a person who heals him, who pays for him, and then it gives him long-term care until he's returned. Does this sound familiar? It's the story of Jesus. Every one of us left for dead because of our sin, our inability to keep God's law, of which there is no self-justification, abandoned by all other people because, frankly, no other person can save us until we're found by a person who isn't of two ethnicities, but a person who is of two natures, God and man, who heals us, who pays for us, and then gives us to other people to take care of us until he returns. This is the story of Jesus. And if you're like the expert in the law and you think I'm, I'm doing pretty okay, well, then you won't hear this. But if you see yourself in the story as the man on the side of the road, in absolute desperate need of somebody to save me, then know that Jesus has. And that's why he tells this parable. And this is the main point, if you're taking notes with us. The question is, how do you inherit eternal life? And the answer is, admit that you can't and trust that Jesus has saved you. There's no moralizing in this text. I mean, you can read it that way and you can learn some things that the rest of the Bible does teach us about how to behave, but at its absolute foundation, this is a parable about 100% law and gospel. You cannot save yourself. Jesus has saved you. If you think you can save yourself, you're wrong and you are throwing away the gospel. But if you are desperate for Jesus, he has done everything necessary for you. 
So don't lose that. Like, write that down somehow mentally in your mind or on your notes sheet. Because now, what I want to do is I want to show you the bonus features. Um, do you remember this? Some of you are old enough to know what DVDs are. Um, a DVD menu, there were the play options, and then there were the bonus features options, right? And you could watch all the little extra things that they had put on the DVD for you to watch, as like bloopers or something like this. Um, this text kind of does this. There's an obvious main point to this text, and we cannot miss it, and we cannot forget it. And if you leave here, we're forgetting it, then I'm going to bring you back in here and preach the whole sermon again or something. But I do want you to see that there's a whole bunch of other stuff in this text that Jesus leaves for us that are kind of like bonus features. They're really cool little things that help us bring color to this text. The first one I want you to see is that as he tells the text, he says that the, the man who comes out and saves the, the man on the side of the road, the Samaritan, he bandages his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now, this is a homeopathic remedy, and you can understand why, right? Open wounds need moisture to heal, and wine is antiseptic because it's got alcohol in it, so you can get rid of the, any infections that might happen. Of course, there's a, a medical reason for doing this, but isn't it interesting that those are two items that have connections to the two sacraments that we celebrate even now? Of course, wine is the easy one to see, Jesus' blood given to us in the Lord's Supper, but also oil, which was poured on a person's head, in order to mark them as either a prophet, priest, or king, is at least analogous to the water that is poured on a person's head in baptism, which marks them as a royal priesthood and a holy nation of people belonging to God. The Samaritan who went healed this man with baptism in the Lord's Supper, so to speak, which is exactly what Jesus does for you. Another thing to notice is that this happened with a donkey. I mean, this is a detail that does not need to be in the story at all, right? It could have just been the Samaritan was walking, just like the priest and the Levite were walking. But for some reason, Jesus includes that this Samaritan had a donkey. Why? Well, next Sunday, we're going to hear the story of Jesus triumphantly riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. As if to foreshadow what Jesus is about to do as he comes into Jerusalem to be our savior, to literally get down off of his donkey and climb up on a cross in order to die for our sins, Jesus embeds that in the story. Help us see that he is ultimately the good Samaritan. Then you also see that at the end of this text, Jesus gives this man, the Samaritan gives this man to an innkeeper who's going to take care of him. So the Samaritan says, look after him, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. This is the church. Right? When Jesus saves us, he doesn't just say, well, be on your merry way. No, he saves us, he bandages our wounds, he heals us with water and bread and wine, and then he gives us to others. He says, take care of them. And when, you come back, when I come back, I'll reimburse you for any other costs that you have. Any forgiveness that you would have to offer to one another, even though you'd be wronged by one another, that's okay, I'll take care of it on the last day. And this is so important, right? Because Christianity is practiced in community. Over the last couple months, I've had a couple conversations with people who have said something to the effect of, well, I don't need the church to be a Christian. Yes, you do. Absolutely you do. It, it's, it's in Scripture on, on nearly every page of Jesus' teaching. Like He wants to connect people to people. And he puts it in this parable for us. And another thing we can see is that the question, who is my neighbor, actually does get answered in this text. It's not just condemnation. Jesus actually does show us something about what it means to love our neighbor. Right, when we look at a neighbor today, the word neighbor, we have a certain conception of it. 
we think of it probably as the people who live in our neighborhood, like live in the houses that are around our house. That's fine, um, but because of the, the modern travel that all of us can utilize, it's probably a little bit different than that. You've got to think back into Jesus' time. Everyone lived in small towns with only walking, basically, as their mode of travel. And so you lived and worked and played with all kind of same people. So your neighbors were actually your neighbors. Those are the people you saw regularly. Um, if you're anything like me, you barely see the people who live in the houses near you. But you do see a whole lot of other people. You see your coworkers, you see people at church, you see your friends who may not necessarily live in the same neighborhood as you. So Jesus is saying, well, who is my neighbor? Not necessarily the person who lives next to me, but the person who's right in front of me. So my neighbor at work is my coworker. My neighbor at church are the people sitting near me. My neighbor in the, the grocery store is the cashier who's checking me out. My neighbor is who is ever right in front of me. And that's important for us because we, I think, sometimes have the sense that we would like to do good for people who are far away. Because frankly, that's easier. The farther away you keep people, the less they can hurt you. But the closer they are, the more potential they have to hurt you, so they're harder to love. God calls us to love the people who are right in front of us. So that starts for all of us in our families. Like love your husband, love your wife as yourself. In other words, you exist in order to make your spouse's life better. And your kids. They're not just problems that you have to make sure to get out of the way so that you can keep accomplishing your goals. No, they're here for you to serve them, to raise them up to be Christians. And then move in here. These people who you see every week, love them as yourself. Love them even though they might be different than you. Love them even though they can't offer anything to you. Because that's how Jesus loved every one of us. And if you can't find out who your neighbor is, look again at the text. Jesus says it. The Samaritan, as he traveled, came upon this man. It was just going through the normal things of life. This Samaritan wasn't out on roads trying to find people who were beaten up on the side of the road. He was going somewhere else. He was doing something else. But he saw somebody who needed him right in front of him. And he stopped. And he loved. Your neighbor is whomever God has put right in front of you. So let's start by thinking about who are those people. Every one of us has different people, and that's on purpose. Because the people who are in your life are not the people in my life, because if we switched places, I would mess that up. <laughs> and you would mess up my life. God has uniquely crafted every single one of you to serve the people whom you have, he has made you neighbor to. So think about what are my gifts? What are my resources? Am I a man? Am I a woman? Am I empathetic? Am I visionary? Am I strategic thinking? Am I analytical? Can I help in this way? What skills do I have? How has God particularly positioned me to benefit people around me? That's what it means to love your neighbor. We treat our neighbor the same way Jesus treated us. So there are, of course, a number of other things you probably could find in this text, but for the sake of time, I'm going to stop there and remind you of the main points so that I don't have to preach to you again. Jesus has paid it all. And all to him you owe. But he asks you to pay that to others. And as you live together in this community, waiting for Jesus to come back, continue to forgive like Jesus forgives. Continue to love like Jesus has loved. Because that will fulfill the law. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for showing us that we are helpless by ourselves to ever live up to your standards so that we can turn wholeheartedly to you and trust the gospel that you have paid it all for us. Help us to see our baptisms 
in the Lord's Supper, as those beautiful pictures of your grace given to us in tangible form, help us to see our neighbors as those who you indwell by your Holy Spirit, whom you have given us to love. Help us to see our own gifts and resources and positionings in life and to see them as valuable assets to love our neighbor. If we can't see those things, help us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit and by other Christians around us to see those things that we can continue to bring your kingdom like you called the 72 and the 12 to do.